Well, good morning and welcome to our services this morning. We pray and hope that everyone here has found a, a church that is loving, a church that's welcoming. And want you to know that if you're visiting for the first time with us this morning, that we are so glad that you are here and welcome you back anytime you can possibly be with us. Choi, would you mind turning on the back projector for me when you get a chance? This morning we are going to be beginning a series of sermons that Zach and I will be covering focus on the idea of Christian apologetics and the idea of evidential faith. And we always like to start this line of sermons and apologetic discussion with a focus on the young people, but the truth is there's not a single person here this morning that cannot benefit from these discussions over the next four weeks. Parents of young people, especially your kids, if they aren't already, will be challenged day after day with immoral and atheistic ideas and the idea that God does not exist, that God does not matter, or religion is for old people, and that's all going to be shoved into their minds day after day. So it's vitally important that we teach them that the faith that we have is built on evidence. There was a really good book that I would recommend by Ken Ham. It's called Already Gone. The premise of this book focuses on how this country has a problem with young people leaving the church when they get to college at higher rates than ever before, rates of epidemic proportions and the author seeks to find out why. After years of research and dedications to seeking the answer, he comes to the unfortunate conclusion that it's not really college professors and being on their own that makes children leave the church. Rather, they've mentally checked out from God and checked out from religion years before they sit in front of an atheistic professor. You see, he concludes that the problem starts in the home, hence the title for the book. The premise Ham takes is simply young people don't leave that they, because they walked into a college. They were gone before they got there. And what this tells me is we need to put forth effort and diligence into making sure our kids' faith is theirs and not just ours. They need to own it. Because, well, my, my mom goes to church. My dad says God is real. The deacons say sexual immorality is wrong will not hold up against somebody with a Ph.D. who spends a semester teaching them that God does not exist. That church is not that important if it's not their faith and their beliefs as well. The theme verse for this series we're going to be referencing comes from 1 Peter 3 and verse 15, and you'll see this every sermon throughout the next four weeks. 1 Peter 3 and 15 says this, it says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Amen. A couple of things we need to recognize about this verse. Number one, the word answer there in the Greek is strong 627 and is the Greek word apologia. Apologia. If you were curious what apologetics is, this is it right here. It's not being sorry for being a Christian. Defined in the, in the Greek, the word apology is a verbal defense or a reason statement. So let's place that in the context of the theme verse this morning. Be ready to give a verbal defense for the hope that is in you. In other words, we're describing the idea of defending your faith and as the verse states, your hope in Jesus Christ. And secondly, we need to realize, and we often forget this part of the verse, is that we need to give an answer out of meekness and fear. I heard someone once say, I hope God judges me for what I said and not how or why I said it. Wouldn't that be nice? Brethren, the goal of this series is not to teach you to win arguments. The goal of this series is not to give you material to defeat other people. The point of this series is to help give the tools we need, the information we need to be able to give an answer, to plant the seed in someone's heart. And brethren, the goal first and foremost is to save souls. The first topic this morning we'll discuss is theism versus atheism, and we'll, we'll examine the question and ask which is truth. The second topic will be next week, covered by Zach, will be the truth and the inspiration of the Word of God. The third, series, the third part of this series will, will be me covering the Bible and textual criticism. We'll look at the translations we have in our hand and ask the question, can I trust that translation? It's been translated for 2,000 years. Can I still trust what's in my hand today? And then Zach will cover the fourth part that is difficult questions 
from an atheist. And he's outlined four questions and common objections that he's going to seek to cover that morning. But we want you to know if there's something that you feel needs to be covered, something you think we aren't addressing, come talk to us, talk to dad, talk to Tim, and we can try and address those in the fourth part of this series. All in all, we hope and pray that you're excited to be here this morning, excited to worship with us and excited for this series. It's our goal to edify you. It's our goal to uplift you and give you some of the tools you need to spread the message of Jesus Christ. To start this morning, we want to take a look at two things we're going to be basing this study off of this morning. The first of these is called theism. Theism is defined by Merriam-Webster's as the belief in the existence of a God or gods. Specifically, the belief in the existence of one God viewed as the creative source of the human race and the world who transcends yet is immanent in the world. On the other side of the coin, we have atheism. Break that down for a minute. We have atheism. Simply means not theism. So atheism is the opposite or a lack of belief in theism. So which is correct? Theism or atheism? Does God exist? And we're going to be covering a series of premise-based arguments to navigate this question this morning. For a quick refresher, a premise-based argument it goes essentially like this. A equals B, B equals C, then A must equal C. For example, all eagles are birds. Premise 2 says all birds lay eggs. So our conclusion, or our third premise, is that all eagles lay eggs, which we know to be true. So as we navigate the question of does God exist, we're going to use this format throughout the sermon this morning. So let's dive right in. The first argument we're going to cover, and we're going to examine the, the origins of life, or the correct view of the origin of the universe, and it's called the cosmological argument. How did the earth begin? The premise goes like this. Skip the slide there. Premise one says everything that has a beginning has a cause. That's also known as the law of causality. Premise two says the universe had a beginning. And premise three says that the universe had a cause. So what caused the universe? And what caused life? Generally, there are a few ways that the people say earth came into existence or the universe came into existence. Either one, it has always existed meaning we live in a universe that has existed forever, an infinite universe, also known as the steady state theory. Secondly, some think the universe spontaneously came into being, in other words, known as the Big Bang. And lastly, we have Christians that believe God himself breathed the universe into existence. So let's cover the infinite universe to start. Genesis 1.1, and one of the most heated debates of today's time, says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I can read a bunch of verses this morning that speak to the exact same thing. That God, with Christ at his side, we might add, created the heavens and the earth. In other words, the universe had a beginning according to the word of God. The universe did not always exist. It is not infinite, but was created by a creator. So what does science say about this? Is the universe an infinite universe? I want to give you an acronym to cover this morning, and there's not a whole lot of scientists that still believe this theory, so we're going to go through it rather quickly just to give you some information. And the acronym is called SURGE. SURGE. The S stands for the second law of thermodynamics. And we're going to hit on this in a few minutes, but essentially what that means is the universe is moving from order to disorder. Order to disorder. Your cars degrade, right? Rust happens. Things break down. If the universe was infinite, it wouldn't be degrading or would be already degraded by now. But instead, what we see is that the universe is going from order to disorder, so the universe cannot therefore be infinite. The U is that the universe is expanding, more specifically expanding from a centralized point. Science has proven the fact that the universe came from one point. Some call it a Big Bang. We believe that God spoke it into existence. The R is radiation, simply meaning there are radiation waves from the initial creation point, meaning it has not always existed, but again, had a beginning. The G stands for great galaxy seeds, and this speaks to the number of galaxies that there are around us. Essentially, the premise is if the universe was infinite, 
we would see variations in gravitational pull of the different galaxies around us. In fact, it would be so much that a galaxy would open and then force close on itself so we wouldn't have galaxies. But yet we see seeds of other galaxies all around us, meaning the universe had a beginning. And the E there stands for Einstein's theory of general relativity. His theory, which we will reference a few times this morning, proves to the standard of five decimal places that time, matter, and space are co-relative. In other words, they are interdependent, meaning they would have had to come into existence at the exact same time. You can't have a chair with no place to put it. You can't have empty space at this hour with zero matter in it. It makes logical sense. Meaning those would have to come into existence at the same time. So the universe cannot be infinite, but is bound by Einstein's theory of general relativity. So we have five reasons to believe why the universe had a beginning. And we have the universe, or we have the word of God that goes into great detail of how that beginning happened. So if the universe isn't infinite, it means it had a creation point. So the question then becomes, what created it? Let's talk for a minute about the, the Big Bang. The Big Bang assumes that two random atoms collided and exploded, hence the Big Bang, and have expanded, creating everything we know to be true today. Really popular in the 70s and 80s. Anybody remember that theory? I'm sure you've heard of it. No one really teaches that theory anymore, and let me tell you why. Look at the screen above you. Everything that exists must have a cause. So it's awesome to assume that two atoms randomly collided, but brethren, the question becomes, who created the atoms? And the scientists will go on to say that there's vacuums that generated the atoms, and once again, we're back to the same fundamental question, aren't we? Well, who created the vacuums? The idea that we need to grasp from this is that we can trace this back to an infinite amount of causes, but eventually you have to overcome the idea that something could exist without a cause. Something had to exist that did not have to be created. Something had to exist outside of time, outside of matter, and outside of space to create time, matter, and space. In other words, there had to be an uncaused first cause. The book of Colossians in chapter 1 verse 16 says this, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is before all things. He is before space, before matter. He is before any cause. Brethren, he is the uncaused first cause. Revelations 1 and 8 says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Brethren, the uncaused first cause, the gap that the atheist can't figure out is your God. God is the uncaused first cause. Real science disproves time and time again that false science is wrong. So if the universe was caused by something... If we have something rather than nothing, and science has proved that it had a beginning and that it is not an infinite universe, where else can we go with the origin of life? This is where we see the necessity of the evolutionary theory for the scientific community. So let's talk for a minute about evolution. Evolution was an idea developed by two men named Alfred Russell Wallace. Where are we at here? named Alfred Russell Wallace and Charles Darwin. Darwin really couldn't prove that evolution worked, but did figure out what he claimed to be the mechanism behind evolution was that of natural selection. The theory claims that life started in deep-sea hydrothermal vents as amoebas, using the theory of abiogenesis, and has such then been evolving further and further for billions of years into who we are today. Lots of assumptions, isn't it? So let's start with the idea of abiogenesis. Abiogenesis is the idea that life can come from non-life. Life from non-life. In other words, something had to come from nothing. This theory was developed in a series of experiments in the 1800s by four men, and we just want to take a look at one of the experiments. This was done by a man named Louis Pasteur. 
You may recognize that name from the pasteurization of milk. Essentially, we had the methodology is that broth is in a flask is boiled to kill any pre-existing microorganisms. In other words, they create a sterile environment inside of this flask. And then what they do, the broth cools, the condensing water collects, and it fills that little loop outside the flask so it seals the mouth of that flask to where no growth can get inside. So as long as nothing's coming in from the outside and nothing exists on the inside, nothing is forming. And then what we see in the experimental results is as we break the top and air can come in, microbes can now grow. So unless you introduce something from the outside, unless you introduce something into nothing, you cannot have life. So his conclusion, therefore, is that cells can only arise from pre-existing cells. So as you can tell, the theory of abiogenesis being the beginning of evolution is a pretty self-defeating idea. Another problem with evolution that we have is the second law of thermodynamics, and we've mentioned that already this morning. The second law of evolution, or second law of thermodynamics states that the entropy of the universe is always increasing. Now that may not mean a whole lot to you this morning, but what we need to recognize is the fastest way to increase entropy, or the most common way to increase entropy, is to move from order to disorder. Going from order to disorder. Think about that for a minute. We've already discussed it a little bit, but your car starts off shiny and brand new. A few thousand miles later, it's dirty, it's breaking down, it's rusty. If you drive a Chevy, unfortunately, it may not even be running anymore, right? Order to disorder. Your body's the same way. Remember how fast you used to get up on Christmas morning to open those gifts? The crazy positions you could sleep in, the athletic ability we had? I'm 24 years old, and if I got down from this podium right now, you'd hear so many pops, you thought I'd break something. In fact, I was just telling Dad, I tried to stand up to walk back there, and my ankle popped, and I almost fell in Shane's lap. Would have been quite comical. But it's the natural flow of the universe. It's a law of nature, order to disorder. So let's apply that to evolution. Starting in hydrothermal vents as amoebas, moving into a conscious human being. Ask the question, is that order to disorder? Or is that disorder to order? And I think you'll agree that its complexity increases, moving from disorder to order, disobeying the second law of thermodynamics. And I want to read you a quote from an astrophysicist named Arthur Eddington. He says this regarding the second law of thermodynamics. He says, the law that entropy always increases holds, I think, the supreme position among the laws of nature. If your theory is found to be against the second law of thermodynamics, I can give you no hope. There is nothing for it but to collapse in deepest humiliation. So the question arises, does the Bible speak to any of this? And I think you'll agree it does. In Psalms, the 102nd chapter and verse 25, the writer says this concerning God. He says, If old thou hast laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment, as a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed, but thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. So let's break this down for a minute on the screen. Speaking of God, the psalmist describes that he is the creator, whereas the universe is the creation in verse 25. Verse 25 also teaches us that God as the creator has no beginning. In other words, he has been here for an infinite amount of time. Contrary to that, it tells us that the universe was formed, meaning it had a beginning. It tells us in verse 26 and 27 that God is unchanging and has no end. But once again, contradictory to God, the world has no end or has an end. In fancier terms, it's a finite universe defined by time. And lastly, it's a changing universe. It will wax old like a garment. What we want to notice is this. The creation will grow old. It will degrade and it will change. Sound familiar? Order to disorder, right? So once again, the Bible confirms what science has just figured out. So the question then arises, why would anybody believe this theory? And the fault comes in Darwin's application. 
You see, when Darwin found finches on the island of Galapagos, and he observes these finches, after years of observing these finches, he notices the ones with larger beaks can, can survive because they can reach down deep and reach seed. And the ones that don't have smaller beaks, meaning only the ones with the large beaks, can reproduce. And then they reproduce with large beaks, so it continually passes genes for those who have large beaks. Pretty simple, right? And it's true. We've ran this theory on dogs when we breed dogs, don't we? We keep breeding ones for, for some reason with super short legs, and we call them munchkins or something like that. Or we get miniature dogs, and we only breed two miniature dogs until we progressively get smaller dogs. We do it all the time, right? Sometimes it fails. On Wednesday, ask Emma to see a picture of her 65-pound miniature Australian shepherd and see how that worked out for her. But what natural selection is, is simply microevolution. And understand there is a difference between microevolution and macroevolution. Brother, and microevolution is true in its base form. Natural selection is true in its base form. It's a proven science. But the problem with evolutionary theory is that they take the proof of microevolution and they apply it to macroevolution with the same evidence and have no evidence to prove that macroevolution is possible. Science claims that for a theory to be proven, it must be able to be tested and be replicated. Brethren, we know microevolution is possible. We just discussed it. But when was the last time you saw a fish get up and walk? When was the last time you saw a monkey start talking? You see, macroevolution, simply meaning huge jumps in the evolutionary theory, are proven by minuscule changes or microevolution. The problem with this is that we don't have fossil record support of macroevolutionary changes in the fossil record. We often refer to these missing fossil records as the missing link between evolutionary jumps. We would need to find fossils between the monkey and the human that exhibited features of both to show that microevolution was happening. But we don't. Why? Because the natural selection process to make that jump is impossible due to the irreducibly complex systems that exist in the smallest of creatures on the earth today. And this is the greatest fault of evolution. Darwin was quoted in his book, The Origin of the Species, saying this, If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed, which could not have possibly been formed by numerous successive slight modifications my theory would absolutely break down. I want you to think about a mouse trap for a brief moment. You have the spring, you have the platform, you have the catch, and so on. The idea that Darwin presents in its simplicity is that you would have to assume that that mouse trap was formed by numerous modifications into what it is today. And it would have to progressively work at each step. In other words, the mousetrap started as a platform and it caught two mice. Then evolved and only got the spring and now we catch four mice. Then the spring and the catch catch ten mice and eventually evolved into what we have on the screen and is being mass replicated. The problem with this idea is if you take any one of those parts away, you aren't catching any mice, are you? If the spring isn't there, the catch won't fire. If the catch isn't there, the spring just rotates. If the holding bar isn't there, you can't set the trap. In other words, the trap is irreducibly complex. You cannot reduce a mouse trap down any further and say that it would gradually work at each step. Now I want you to think about the human cell. There are the mitochondria, Golgi apparatus, endoplasmic reticulum, all those other terms that you haven't heard in 20 years. Did you know if you remove or change any of those, the cell will die? The cell cannot function without each and every one of those parts being present, meaning, brothers and sisters, that the cell is irreducibly complex. And thank to what Darwin, the creator of evolutionary theory, says, my theory would absolutely break down. Evolution cannot have possibly jumped from the complexity of one cell to another in multiple minor changes. But yet the world still takes it as an answer. Why is that? 
Brethren, when we take the idea of a supernatural creator, when you try to take God out of the picture, things suddenly become difficult to explain. And you start to have to rely on explanations that are faulty, explanations that have gaps, explanations that defy physics, that defy the laws of nature, that break their own science. The point is, brethren, we don't have to look in a man-made reasoning to find the origins of the universe. We don't have to rely on our own logic to understand because God tells us. Think of what Paul says in Hebrews, the 11th chapter and verse 3. It says, through faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And you're going to hear this time and time again over the next four weeks. Your God, the I am, the creator of the universe, does not ask you to blindly leap into following him. Your faith is a faith built on evidence. It's a faith backed by science and a faith that doesn't crumble when we put it to the test. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And folks, the same God who created all these things around me, the God of the universe, chooses to dwell in the smallest of places inside you and I. As much as this series is built around teaching you to explain and discuss with the non-believer folks, I want you to feel the gravity of this verse. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. The word of God. You are more than products of time and chance. When you love your spouse, those feelings are more than just brain fizz. We are more than just matter in motion, apes who have evolved from fish. Brethren, evolution is not the answer. Random chance is not the answer. The universe was designed with a purpose, and the universe was designed by your God. The next thing we'll discuss this morning is titled the teleological argument. This is often referred to as the design argument. So let's take a look at the premises. Premise one says every design has an intelligent designer. Premise two says the universe has a highly in, or highly complex design. So premise three says, therefore, the universe is a product of intelligent design. So for a few minutes, let's talk about the design of the universe. First, we have what are called anthropic constants, often referred to as cosmic constraints. We have the gravitational force constant. It's in a perfect degree in which people are bound to the earth. It's gravity. If it was any weaker, planets couldn't form. Any stronger and stars would burn up and you couldn't survive its weight. We have the electromagnetic force constant, which is the constant that provides an attractive and repulsive force that allows things to bond. Think of magnets repulsing and attracting to one another. Problem with that constant is if it was any other number than what it is, our chemical hydrogen bonds couldn't form, meaning you couldn't exist. Secondly, we have things that are called initial conditions. For example, the ratio of masses of protons to electrons, any greater or smaller, and the base building blocks of DNA could not form. Third, we have what are called planetary conditions. We have the right amount of water in the crust, a large moon with the right rotational period, the right planetary mass, any smaller in the solar wind would rip our atmosphere away and you'd burn up. And folks, the truth is this. We can go on and on and on with example after example this morning of how fine-tuned the universe is, but here's the reality. The chances that this could possibly happen are so astronomically small, it's pretty much incalculable. Just the chances that one of those constants is correct is 10 to the millionth power. You can talk to Jeff about how small that is after services. So obviously the universe had to be designed. And the Bible talks to its design. But young people here this morning, I want you to turn your eyes to the screen for a minute. When we say the word science, understand that science is a body of study that seeks to find cause and effect relationships in the universe around us. So understand that the Bible and science do not disagree. But the Bible and scientists sometimes do. Because science is data and evidence. Science doesn't say anything. Scientists do. Scientists have thought for thousands of years that they know better than God. 
And time and time again, science comes in and proves that God was correct. There was a time in this world where the brightest minds on the planet were 100% sure that the earth was flat. There was a time in this world where the brightest minds said we need to bleed if we're sick. My entire career is focused on putting blood back into people. I would urge you to consider how serious you take the ideas that your teachers and professors present. It doesn't mean they're always wrong, but sometimes... The very science that we spend our whole life working on can be disproven by one fact. The very equations that they teach you in school could be proven invalid tomorrow, but one thing and one thing only stands true. And we'll talk about it throughout this series. And that one thing is the Word of God. But I want to shift our focus to one of God's greatest creations. Not the watch. The human being. I want you to think about a watch for a moment, though. I want you to imagine you've never seen a watch before. One day you're walking on the beach and you step on something. (coughs) You look down and below your foot rests a circular glass object. You begin to investigate this object and you notice it has intricate pieces that seem to be formed together. You notice that the hands are moving around in a circular pattern at a constant rate that never changes. You notice different parts of the watch are responsible for different things. You then decide to take this thing apart. And you see the inner workings of the watch and you realize its complexity and its design and you have to ask yourself a question. Was this watch made by something? Or did it just suddenly by random chance come into existence? Ask the question for the atheist. Did the waves pounding into the beach day after day somehow create metal that formed into gears that then over time were arranged in such a way that they began to move in perpetual motion and then the sun heated up the sand in such a way that glass formed and then a few animals died and their hides somehow perfectly fell into a watch wrist or a wrist watch that you could strap together? You consider its complexity, its intricate design, its capability to maintain equal patterns of ticking, its beauty, its elegance, and its purpose, and come to the realization that this watch could not have possibly arrived by a series of random events, but instead was made by a designer, the watchmaker. We've talked about the universe a little bit this morning, so in the context of the design argument, I want to turn the microscope to you and I. Every one of us here this morning have something in us called DNA. DNA stands for deoxyribonucleic acid. DNA is a complex structure inside of each of us that is made of nucleotides. Each one of these nucleotides have base pairs containing the phosphate groups adenine, guanine, cytosine, and thymine. All of these things code together to give us a three million long sentence that codes for exactly who you are. And that's just in one of your cells. If you look at the entirety of the DNA in your body, if you stretched it out to read a code, you would have a string that would go around the solar system not once, but twice. And that huge strand codes to exactly who you are. There's not a single other person that has existed, will exist, or exists now that has the same DNA that you have. It's unique to you. It's your blueprint. It's a sentence that reads who you are. Now ask yourself, just like the watch, Could this have risen from random chance? There was a British philosopher and a very outspoken atheist who spent his life fighting the idea of God. He studied and studied himself into his proof that God does not exist. But there was one thing he could not figure out. He says this, I now think it, speaking of the evidence, does point to a creative intelligence almost entirely because of the DNA investigations. What I think the DNA material has done is that it is shown by the almost unbelievable complexity of the arrangements which are needed to produce life that an intelligence must have been involved in getting these extraordinarily diverse elements to work together. Dr. Flew would go on to describe in this book that the complexity of DNA, after over 30 years of denial of God, had been the one thing that he couldn't figure out. And at the end of his book, he says this, I now believe that there is a God. Brethren, we are intricately made by a designer that took the time to write your story, that took the time to build your DNA, and took the time to make you. 
what philosophers and scientists have spent their whole lives trying to figure out, what science spends trillions of dollars on trying to advance, Christians have understood for thousands of years. King David wrote this in the 139th Psalm, and I think we often take this verse and we don't understand what what David's saying about the Lord God in this chapter. Knowing the complexity of your DNA, the impossible chance that your body can even function, I want you to read this with me out of Psalms 139. It says this, For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee when I was made in secret, and curiously wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Thine eyes did see my substance, yet being imperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there were none of them. We serve an awesome God, don't we? A God who hand-wrote our DNA. Oftentimes we try to pin science against the Bible and against religion. And you know what science keeps finding out? That the science of the universe is too complex to not have an intelligent designer. I want you to read verse 15 with me one more time. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. God took the time to make you, to mold you, to design you, and write a solar system long book about who you are. So don't let anybody tell you that you're not worth it. Don't let anybody tell you that the creator doesn't love you. Because folks, he made you and he shaped who you are. You see, the evidence of DNA demands that a designer write the code. The complexity alone speaks to the impossibility of random chance, meaning very simply, the universe is a product of intelligent design. And if it was intelligently designed, there has to be what? An intelligent designer. And we call that designer God. Lastly, this morning, we want to examine a little less of a scientific approach and more of a logical approach. The premise is this. Premise one says moral laws exist in every human. Premise two says for moral laws to exist, there must be a moral law giver. And premise three says moral laws exist because of a moral lawgiver. And this is what I personally consider to be one of the greatest logical arguments in the realm of apologetics. And I want to start this question, or start this last section by posing a question. Is there a difference between Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler? Is there a difference between Mother Teresa and Adolf Hitler? And you may think that's a weird question. And I would submit to you this morning that if there is not a moral lawgiver that writes a moral law on your heart, there is not a moral difference between these two. Now let's talk about what we mean by that. Morality is something that has taken its effect in society in many different ways. Morals and ethics are things that have structured society, structured human minds since the very beginning of time. And what we see in today's world is we have two sets of people. One set of people believe in moral absolutes, absolute values, absolute truths. And we have a second set of people who believe truth, morality, and values are all relative. We refer to these things as relativist thoughts. Everything is relative to the person or to the situation. And so with morality, we run into the same issue. If you don't believe there's a moral law, you must believe that morality is relative to the person. And to cover the idea of morality, we want to discuss four things as we come to a close this morning in the sense of a supernatural creator. Number one, we can know that there is a moral law written on our hearts due to our reactions. Now let me show you what I mean by this. I read a book once that there was a college student who wrote a paper that said there are no moral absolutes and that God did not write a moral law on his heart Thus his thesis, there is no God. He proudly turns this paper into a professor titled Moral Relativism on the folder. The professor looks at it, stamps it with an F, hands it back to the student and says, I don't like blue. Of course, the, the student is outraged. He's fit to be tied. He looks at the professor and says, that's not fair. That's not right. That's not just. And he throws a huge fit. Here's the point. 
The student may think that there are no moral absolutes, that there are no moral laws on everyone's heart, but his reactions prove that there is. You see, the student at least believed in the moral absolute of justice, getting what's fair, being held to the same standard standard as his cohort. You see, our reactions prove that there is morality within us, even if our actions do not. And I'll say that again. Our reactions prove that morality is within us, even if our actions do not. Think of a thief. He may not think it's morally wrong for him to steal your car. The murderer may not think it's morally wrong for him to kill someone. It's all relative, right? But what about when you take the thief's car? You know how many thieves go down to the police station when something's stolen from them? A lot, right? Because their reactions show their indwelling morality, even if their actions do not. Here's the overarching point. The moral law God established on our heart may not always be the way that we treat others, but it's almost entirely in which the way we expect others to treat us. And it proves an indwelling sense of right and wrong. Secondly, without the moral law, human rights could not exist. Thomas Jefferson said in the beginning of the Declaration of Independence, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Understand that the Founding Fathers stated that men are endowed by their creator with certain rights, rights that cannot be taken away from you. And my goal this morning is not to analyze the means, the justifications, or anything at all about America's independence, but I want you to notice how Jefferson starts. He appeals to the moral right, moral absolutes that humans have given to them by their creator. The Declaration of Independence is essentially a list of grievances against King George. And Jefferson appeals to the moral rights and moral law that God establishes and upholds and accuses King George of violating those rights. And that's what he means by unalienable rights endowed by their creator. My point is to show you that without an indwelling sense of right and wrong, human rights could not exist. Think of World War II. I want to ask you a question. What right did America have to declare that Hitler was wrong? It's morally acceptable to him, right? Well, we have international laws, the Nuremberg trials that convicted him of violating basic human rights and trials that convicted him, trials that are defined by the moral law, an absolute standard that exists above every human that's written on our hearts. So once again, we can conclude that there is a moral law. Thirdly, without the moral law, injustice and justice cannot be known. C.S. Lewis once wrote this, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing the universe with when I called it unjust? One of the most famous arguments that has ever been posed against Christianity is that God allows bad things to happen to good people. You've all heard it. Dad spoke about it from the pulpit here. And Zach, I think in the fourth sermon of this series, is going to discuss that question. But the issue arises with how they define what is bad. How do I know something is bad unless I have an indwelling sense of what is good? How can I understand what injustice is if I don't have an indwelling sense of what is just? I cannot understand what is crooked unless I have an indwelling sense of what is straight. And I cannot understand if something is right or wrong unless I am comparing it to an absolute standard that already exists, proving the existence of a moral law. And lastly, we make excuses for violating the moral law. You ever seen anyone make excuses for doing something wrong? Happens all the time. Well, I had a rough week at work, so I had to go to the bar. Well, weed's the only thing that makes me feel good. My spouse hasn't been fulfilling my desires, so I had to go find it somewhere else. Excuses, excuses, and excuses for sin. You ever heard anyone give an excuse for doing good? Well, here's the deal, Sean. I had extra on my paycheck. My bills are in. The kids are set. I'm in a good place. So I just, Sean, just understand, I just had to give more to the contribution this morning. You don't have to make an excuse for that. 
But the world asks us to tolerate immoral behavior, to tolerate others' actions. You know who they don't ask you to tolerate? The married husband and wife expecting their first child. The man who gets up and works for his family every day. They ask you to tolerate immorality. Which, by the way, not to go down a rabbit hole, but tolerance itself is technically a moral principle that the atheists ask you to uphold while denying that moral principles exist. You see, we make excuses for our actions when deep down we know what we are doing is wrong. I want to read you something from Adolf Hitler from his letter, Mein Kampf. He says this, If nature does not wish that weaker individuals should mate with the stronger, she wishes even less that a superior race should intermingle with an inferior one. Because in such cases, all her efforts throughout hundreds of thousands of years (coughs) to establish an evolutionary higher stage of being may thus be rendered futile. But such a preservation goes hand in hand with the inexorable law that it is the strongest and the best who must triumph and that they have the right to endure. He who would live must fight. He who does not wish to fight in this world where permanent struggle is the law of the life has not the right to exist. Why did Hitler do this? Why would he say this? Because he was making an excuse, a justification for killing millions of of Jews. That's how he gets a following, right? This was in 1924, so 16 years before World War II. He made the German society think that Jews were less than people. He dehumanized them. He made excuses. Does that sound familiar? The pro-choice folks in today's society don't go around with a billboard that says, kill babies. They don't tell you to do that. That's insane, right? That would be completely immoral. But instead, they explain that until 28 days... The fetus isn't even human. They dehumanize the fetus. You see what they're doing. They're playing semantics, dehumanizing them into less than human, justifying the murder of children. Point is, people make excuses for immoral behavior. And if moral laws do not exist, if morality is not an absolute, if there is no moral law in your heart, why do we have to make excuses? Because deep down... Even the biggest God-despising atheist has an indwelling sense of what is right and what is wrong. So if we have a moral law written on our hearts, which I think we can understand from these four points, who put it there? Romans chapter 2 tells us, starting in verse 12 of this concept, Paul, Paul says this to the letter of Rome. He says, For as many have sinned without the law shall also perish without law. And as many have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these, having not the law, are a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. In the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Brethren, evolution cannot explain the moral law. It explains what they say is consistent sequential physical mutations, but it does not account for morality. Brethren, if there is a moral law, which there is, there must be a moral law giver. Someone to set the standard. Someone to define justice, morality. Someone who divides love from hate. Someone who declares what righteousness is. Someone who defines what right is. Who embodies it so we can understand, therefore, what is wrong. The atheist cannot explain the moral law written on their hearts. However, the Christian can. As we bring this message to a close this morning, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. I'm going to read verse 16 through 20. Romans chapter 1. Paul says this. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has showed it to them. 
For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Brethren, we serve a God who is real, a God who is alive, a God who intervenes in this world, a God who loves us enough to send his son to a gruesome death, to die on a cross, to be buried in a tomb, rise again, sit at the right hand of the Father and intercede for you today. But brethren, we also serve a God who loves us enough to give you a choice, to give you free will to make the choice of whether or not you are going to serve him. We've discussed this morning three reasons we can be assured there's a God, three reasons to help us cross boundaries, to help us in our studies, to reach the lost who think along these lines. But understand this morning, if you think you can live a life away from God, live a life apart from his will and be okay, you're wrong. Read verse 20. For the invisible things of the world are clearly seen so that they are without excuse. Brethren, when we stand before our Creator, He will look at you and He will either see a man full of sin and send you into a lake of fire, or He will see the blood of His Son. And there is no other way to Him but through Jesus Christ. If you are without Christ, you have no excuse that will stand on Judgment Day. And brethren, your next door neighbor, your friend, your family member, and sometimes our own spouse that doesn't believe in God that hasn't studied the word, that we haven't reached out to, that we're too scared to talk to, is in the exact same boat. They have seen the creation so that they are without excuse. Be the type of people, be the type of Christians that reach out, be the people that cross over the lines and love like Jesus. Take that first step and plant a seed that might lead to a soul being saved. We're really excited for this series and hope you are as well. We've enjoyed putting these messages together and pray that you're going to be edified, that you've been uplifted and encouraged to spread the message of Jesus. But maybe this morning you realize that you haven't obeyed the gospel of Christ and you stand in a position like to that of Romans, that you have no excuse before a just and a righteous creator. Jesus extends a gift to you this morning to be the propitiation, to pay the price that your sin carries and welcome you home one day. Or maybe you've obeyed the gospel and found yourself struggling recently. Life is hard. Decisions are backfiring and you've hit rock bottom. Your loving Heavenly Father understands that you fail, understands our weakness, but in our weakness, His strength is made perfect. And He created a body of Christians to pray for you, to uplift you and to strengthen you. Will you allow us to do that for you this morning as we stand and as we sing?